Please take your Bibles now and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And the words to which I would call your attention this morning are found in verses 32 through 34. Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. As we read these, remember that these are God's very words. The words that He would have you listen to, take counsel from, and give attention to now. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to Him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We ask that you would cause it to become to us a treasure. Something that we go to, that we seek to reap a harvest from, that we read and meditate upon and that it becomes the delight and the joy of our soul. And now we pray, O Lord, would you give us understanding, hide this sinner behind the cross and let your people see the joy of their Savior and his beauty. We pray in his name, amen. Well, Matthew here is beginning to draw this section of his gospel to a close. And, and like any author now, he has he's written his gospel in sections. As we pay attention to it, we, we notice that there are certain themes, uh, there are certain motifs that run through each section. And this one is, is coming to an end. We've seen uh, Jesus perform miracles of various types. He's been very intimate in the way that he has performed these miracles. Occasionally, he's, he's touched a person's hand. Or he's entered into a home. Or he's placed his, his hands on someone's eyes and he's restored their sight. Here, Matthew records one final specific miracle before we move on. It is the casting out of a demon. And one of the emphases of this section of Matthew's Gospel, remember, has been his authority. If we went back to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember the scene of the crowd there? What was happening? The people were gathered around Jesus and his, as His words sort of fell to the earth and the silence was there, the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. It had an effect upon them. Well, what sort of effect was it? Here in this section, we have seen that Jesus is not just any teacher. He is an authoritative teacher. He's not like any other teacher that they've encountered because he seems to, to preach with understanding, to teach with wisdom. They've never seen anything like this. But through this section, we've seen that Jesus would demonstrate his power and his authority, didn't he? How did he do that? He's cast out demons. He's gone back and forth on the sea. He's encountered storms. People with all kinds of illnesses have come to him. Nothing can stand in his way. 
And this is what we expect. If he is to live up to his billing as the Son of God and the Redeemer of mankind, he must do these sorts of things. But what's perhaps more surprising is the way that he is performing these miracles. Jesus has not removed to a mountaintop and summoned the people to himself, has he? How has he performed his miracles? He's done so by living in the midst of his people, by touching them, by experiencing the same things that they have experienced, hunger and, uh, uh, and tiredness. He's been worn out from his labor. And although he is God, very God, he is pleased to come to his people in humility and in tenderness and in forbearing. Although there seems to be a relentless pursuit of Christ, he never wears out. I think as as you read this section of Matthew's Gospel, you go from chapter 7, you get into chapter 8, and and you go all the way to the end of chapter 9, it reads a little bit like our prayer sheet. Everybody is coming to Jesus for their physical needs. And they they know of people who have a physical need. And so as we get into the beginning... uh, of this section of Matthew's Gospel, what do we see but a man being lowered down uh, before Jesus by his friends? And this is what we do for our friends as well. Here, we will divide this part of Matthew's Gospel into three points. We'll see the case and the cure and then the subsequent conversation that happens around it. I believe as you read through this with me, you're going to notice that Matthew is drawing your attention, especially to the last part of it, to see how the people respond to this miracle. And let's notice, first of all, the case in verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Literally, he is a mute man who was being afflicted by a demon. So the scene here is that Matthew or, or Jesus is in the house, uh, perhaps, at where he had healed the blind men, and they are leaving. They're going out the door, and as they're going out the door, in comes this man who is deaf or mute. How did he get there? Did you notice? He was brought to Jesus. Now, some. Some suggest that actually the blind men had gone out and they're bringing in their friend who also had a need. I don't think that the construction is that way. I think what's happening here is the blind men have left and now some other friends are bringing in this mute man, this man who who cannot speak. And again, I want you just to notice whether there might be a little tongue-in-cheek from Matthew. The blind men seem to get to Jesus on their own, but the mute man has to have his friends bring him. I don't understand that. Maybe he couldn't stop and ask for directions, and that's why he had to have the help. Nonetheless, whatever the case may be, he is brought by his friends. But perhaps it's just an aspect of this demonic affliction that he is experiencing that he 
resistant. Nonetheless, whatever the case may be, this man has such friends as will insist that he come to Christ for help. As I read these, I was reminded of the words in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. This is an aspect of Christian godliness, an aspect of following Christ, is that we seek to provide help, aid for those who cannot help themselves. We demonstrate the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. But let's notice the type of man that he was. He was a mute and a demonized man. Now, in some places, the the same Greek word that is used here to describe him as a man who cannot speak, he is tongue-tied, is also used to describe those who are deaf. And we're going to encounter that again in chapter 12. So he is a mute and perhaps a deaf man who's never learned to speak. But... Whatever the case may be, he is a man who needs others to speak for him. Matthew notes that this deafness is caused by a demon. It is caused by a demon. Now this is not an ancient explanation for sickness. That's what some would have us believe. Well, he's mute and so there's no way for us to explain this scientifically. We hadn't gotten there yet in in terms of our knowledge. So the way that we explain this is that he must have had some kind of supernatural force acting upon him. How would you work through that? Well, simply in this way. Why then isn't every sickness explained in terms of some sort of demonic possession? That isn't the case, is it? No. Evidently, there was something there, some, some thing, some form, some evidence that it caused them to understand that this was the work of demons. This was the work of Satan. A couple of things that you ought to notice from this part of our passage as we look at the case. I want you to notice Jesus' unceasing care. You know, ministering to others can be fatiguing, can it? It can wear you out. The phone calls, the requests for prayer, the needs. Um, Some of you have experienced a a particular individual who will call and say, I need some food, and it's not just any food. I actually need you to bring these particular items to me. I want uh, biscuits and gravy. Look at verse 32 again. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. These guys weren't even out the door before there was another person making an order. Someone else making a request. You know, one of the things that I get asked about a lot is, Pastor, do you think that Jesus listens to my prayers. I was asked recently, why do I have to go and ask for the same thing over and over and over again? Does Jesus, does, do you think that it irritates Him that I bring my request to Him? And I would just ask you, every time that you are tempted to think that, look at this passage. 
Can you think of a moment in the ministry of Christ when he ever reacted harshly to someone who came to him with a need? And and notice that these are simply people who are treating him like a circus monkey. Not one time since the man with the paralysis came to him and he said, your faith has accomplished your forgiveness. No one's come to him and said, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Reconcile me to the Father. Everyone comes saying, my knee hurts, my elbow hurts, I got a headache. You know what he does? He lets them come. And he lets them come. And he lets them come. And every time they come, they are met with his warmth and his affection and his tenderness. And he would have you know that every time you come to him, even if it is the 10,000th time that you are making your request, the same warmth and the same affection are there to greet you. I have a very dear friend who has been praying for eight years to be reconciled to his daughter whom his wife kidnapped. And we keep praying day by day that there would be reconciliation knowing that Christ always hears those prayers. Notice another thing that you ought to be bringing your friends to Christ. Especially in prayer. There are many men who will resist coming to Christ through your evangelism, but not one of them can resist when you bring them to Christ in prayer. Jesus hears those prayers as well. He never wears out in His well-doing. But notice also how many are the ways that Satan can torment humanity. He loves nothing more than to degrade the image of God in mankind. And look at what he does to this man. It's not that he takes him out and causes him to cut himself in the midst of the tombs. But he knows that God loves the praises and the prayers of his people. So he shuts his tongue up. When you think of God's protection over you and when you pray for Christ's protection over you, don't forget to think about the dumb and the mute man. You have not begun to realize the ways that God protects you from evil. Notice secondly with me the cure. Matthew presents to us the case. We also see the cure. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. I don't know if you had an opportunity last night to watch uh, the Texas A&M and the Arkansas game, but there was this, a really incredible play that happened right at the goal line. Ar- Arkansas, they were on the goal line, and they were, they were in their goal line stance, and the running back ran to the line, and he made his dive, and suddenly the ball was punched out of his arms. And it flew into the air and hit one player's head and bounced off again. And another Texas A&M player caught it. And he started to run to the opposite end zone. 
Well, one of the Arkansas defenders caught up to him and grabbed him by the shoulders and turned him around. And in that moment, the A&M player handed the ball to one of his fellow players who proceeded to run it into the end zone. I made my wife watch the replay. It was really cool. Imagine if I said about that play, yeah, I mean, an Arkansas player fumbled it and Texas A&M scored. It wouldn't quite do it justice, would it? I, I didn't even really give it justice, do it justice. Look at this again with me for a second. As you read scripture, I want you to notice things like this. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Well, who's him? Why not his name? And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. We, we're not giving anybody's names. All along, we've been told that Jesus healed this person. And Matthew goes into this detail and he says, and, and he didn't just heal him, but he said these words. And he put his hands on his eyes. Or he walked into the room and he said this to the people who were standing outside. And he put them away. Well, for some reason here, there's nothing. No mention of Jesus. No mention of how he healed the man. It's totally generic. Matthew's drawing you in. You say, why? I mean, anybody could have healed. Anybody could have cast the demon out. Matthew doesn't even tell us who did it. When the demon had been cast out. But as you and I carefully read this gospel, as we are working through it, you see what's happening is Matthew is provoking us to think what do you say? How did it happen? Maybe a couple of reasons it's done this way. Jesus doesn't have to do anything to cast out a demon. As the infinite and the eternal and the unchanging God who is invested with all power, all that he has to do is will something for it to happen. You understand that? There's no contest. The demon can't even speak back to him if Jesus wills him not to do that. Think about the instances in which Christ has sealed, uh, uh, um, quietened the storm on the sea. There are two. One of them, Jesus stood up on the boat and he raised his hands and he spoke to the winds and the sea and he said, be still. And what happened? They obeyed. Well, we're going to encounter another event on the sea. And Jesus did nothing and said nothing and the winds and the seas obeyed him. It is vital to your Christianity that you understand nothing can oppose the will of God. This is one of the reasons that in our theology we emphasize what we call irresistible grace. I used to stand in evangelistic meetings and, and I would take my hands off the chair when the minister would say, I know some of y'all are holding on to the back of the pew and you're not going to walk forward. When Christ determines to save a man, that man cannot resist. 
The kingdom of Satan cannot resist Christ. Finally, there is nothing that he can do against the Lord. This is why we read that he, he comes and he binds the strong man in Matthew 12, 29. So nothing can resist the will of Christ. What he wants to do, he does. Here's a second reason, perhaps. Matthew makes a mockery of Satan. He records this exorcism like we might record the stomping on an ant. It's not significant. Doesn't need to take up any space in history other than the fact that it happened. He is a nothing. We don't even take notice of it. When Christ determines to put him down, there's no exertion of power. Satan cannot resist Christ. There's no game. There's no strategy. There's no back and forth. Satan only occupies the territory that Christ permits him to occupy, and he does so for his purposes. What you observe on the landscapes of history is not that the Satan is running rampant. He's not loose. He can only fulfill what Christ permits him to fulfill. Isn't this the whole picture of Job 1 and 2? Have you considered my servant Job? Well, I can't do anything to him that you don't permit. Well, that's true. We see the power of Christ who does whatever he wills. We see him making a, a mockery of, of Satan. And so not only, not only as you come to him then, as you come to Him in your prayers and you are persistent in your prayer, one of the things that is driving you to faithfulness is His patience, but you're also driven by His power. At the moment, listen, at the moment that He wills to make you better or to save your friend, He will. So keep going. Keep taking your friends to Christ. Be faithful. Be persistent. And lastly, we see not only the, the case and the cure, but we see the conversation. I, I think, perhaps, one of the big reasons that, that uh, Matthew hasn't recorded any specifics is he wants you to focus on this part. We aren't intended to focus on how Jesus healed, how Jesus exercised the demon. He wants us to focus on the conversation that happened Afterward, Well, first, the mute man spoke. Everybody noticed that he was healed. And then the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And then the Pharisees, of course, had to get their two cents in. There's nothing that Satan takes away that Christ cannot restore. In this man, he had taken his speech and, and perhaps many other things. If you had been, uh, if you were mute in this culture, uh, you weren't as bad as someone who had leprosy. You weren't made to live on the outskirts of the camp, but you weren't permitted to participate in a lot of aspects of the culture. Jesus restores this man. Notice especially that he restores his humanity. He gives him back his ability to speak. And I think we ought to think about this in these terms. 
that when Christ frees your spirit from the dominion of darkness, you will notice it in your tongue. For one, your mouth will be opened in praise. Your mouth will be opened in prayer. You will give testimony to the power of God in your life. He frees your tongue to obey the command of God when He says to you, come, sing a new song. When Jesus saves your soul, He enables you to tame your tongue as we read in James. No longer is it a rudder that's leading you always into shipwreck. When Christ frees your spirit from the dominion of darkness, you notice it in your tongue. Jesus Himself, we're going to hear Him say, He who denies Me before men, Him I will deny before My Father. Why? Because a clamped mouth is a sign that you are under the dominion of Satan. And notice what the crowd did. Many marveled. We expect this, don't we? They've done it already before. They were astonished at His teaching. Why wouldn't they be marveled uh, by His works? Never was anything like this seen in Israel. That's a little clue. Now, is this the first demon that Jesus has cast out? No. We ended the last section in chapter 4 with many bringing their friends and their family to Christ and He was casting out demons. We've seen Him in chapter 8. He cast out demons in the Gentile lands and they were spreading it all over the place. They've heard about Him casting out demons. They've seen Him casting out demons. And they say, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. What does that mean? Well, there again, we're, we're challenged to wrestle with that. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 35, we are told that one of the signs of the Messiah is that He would make the mute to speak. Moses didn't have this power. Elijah didn't have this power. David didn't have this power. Here is one who makes the mute to speak. Here it is. Matthew is giving you the clues, but you have to draw the conclusion. Why? Because this is something that has to live in your heart. This is something that the Spirit has to impart to your soul. You have to believe it. It has to be an aspect of your faith. You draw the conclusion. What does this mean? Well, the Messiah is here. He has wowed the crowds by His words and works. Here it is. God incarnate. But not everybody marveled, did they? Some blasphemed. The Pharisees said He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now one of the things that you're going to see is that at this point, the, the Pharisees, they... They hear what's going on and they understand that, that they cannot disprove what had just happened. All of the weight of the evidence is resting upon the crowd and some sort of conclusion has to be drawn. They can't just say, oh, he did that by some sort of magic. Here's the foil to the whole plot. 
If, if it's correct that Jesus is not the, the, the Christ, then surely the Pharisees would have been able to point it out. But all they can do is try and attribute his work to an evil force. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Here we see them working in the midst of the crowd, making these suggestions, just like Job's wife, just curse God and die. They are working in behalf of the dominion of darkness to sow doubt into the hearts of the people. Here they're not successful, but they will be. Release Barabbas. I appreciate John Calvin's observation here. He says, we learn from this also. That when wickedness has reached the height of blindness, there is no work of God, however evident, that it will not pervert. What does he mean? You remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man lived in his wealth, and Lazarus would lay at his gate all day. And he would always beg for food. And the rich man would always ignore him. And they both died. The rich man went to hell, and Lazarus, the poor man, went to Abraham's bosom. And we see the rich man there burning, begging for just a drop of water to be placed upon his tongue. And that won't be answered with mercy. There's no mercy in hell. He says, well, would you at least send Lazarus back? Go to my brother's so that they will believe and avoid this pain. And do you remember Abraham's response? They have the law and the prophets. Let them believe. Let them listen to them. The point is, and you've got to get this deep down in your understanding, that wicked men won't believe signs. I've told you this before, but many times throughout my Christian life, people would say, oh, I wish that some, this celebrity or that football player would be converted to Christ. Oh, how many people would come to Jesus? Well, none apart from His will. These sinful men, even though they, they've observed over and over and over now the work of Christ, they've seen His tenderness, they've seen His compassion, yet they reject. As Matthew Henry says, evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, and it is both their sin and their punishment. It is an aspect of God's curse against these men, that they should observe the works of Christ in the flesh over and over and over again, and yet it only served to harden and harden and harden further. It's amazing how these groups of people can see the same event and yet interpret it differently. The Pharisees' plight is a curse upon them. Not to recognize the work of Christ reveals that His wrath abides upon them. 
They did not rejoice in the man's deliverance. And their hatred was so deep that even the good Jesus did. You see that? Even the good that Jesus did resulted in their joyless delusion. This morning we remember that whomever Christ draws to Himself, He will never cast out. All who go to Him ought to be confident in His patient care that He can do whatsoever He wills. He's never going to become weary of you. You're never going to wear Him out. He is an infinite fountain of mercy and grace to you. Go to Him and draw and keep drawing. And if He has delivered you from bondage to darkness... This will be demonstrated in the way that you open your mouth to Him. Do you praise Him? Do you seek Him? Do you tell Him your troubles? Do you confess to Him your sins? In this is seen man's deliverance. Let's pray. Our Father, oh, would You loosen our tongues this morning. Let Your Spirit work in our midst that we might no longer be silent observers of Your work, that we might not just sit back and marvel, but that our tongues would be loosened to sing Your praises, that we would do it with zeal and affection for You because of what You've done. We we acknowledge that that if we are in the kingdom, it is only because You have willed it so. Our salvation is all of grace and none of us. Father, we ask that You would be abundant in Your grace toward our church and our community. Use our opened mouths to draw many to Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.